Welcome to this uh, event and the Edinburgh International Book Festival, um, supported by the Hawthornden Literary Retreat. And we're also delighted to welcome our guests from the British Council Bookcase events who are here today. Uh, and, and that showcases the best of contemporary literature. I'm Ramona Koval from the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, um, and it's my great delight talking of the best of contemporary literature to welcome um, uh, you and to also introduce you to Man Booker Prize winning Irish writer Anne Enright. She won that prize for her marvellous novel, The Gathering, the story of the nine surviving children of the Hegarty clan and the history that made them who they were. She's an essayist as well as a novelist, um, educated in English and philosophy and a graduate of the uh, UEA writing course taught by Malcolm Bradbury and the legendary Angela Carter. And it's with her short story collection, Taking Pictures, that she comes to us today. She's a marvellous short story writer and you're about to hear exactly why I say that in a moment. But about Anne Enright's writing, I'll quote you one of your own, Alison Kennedy, who said, for Enright, the body, the mind, the will, the world, the heart, all work upon each other in a terrible, wonderful roar of life. Please welcome Anne Enright to Edinburgh. Thank you very much. It's lovely to be here in Edinburgh. Uh, I want to thank Catherine Lockerbie for her support over the years. Um, and also, it's nice to be doing a British Council event. The British Council gave me money to go to the University of East Anglia. They gave me £3,000 sterling. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I'm still grateful. <laughs> uh, this is a short story from Taking Pictures. Um, I don't know how to say an introduction. I'm often asked in a sort of wan and worried way whether my work is autobiographical, to which the answer now is, I hope not. <laughs> uh, but this uh, was written for the voice of a particular actress, and sometimes I do have people's voices in mind. This was written for the voice. It was part of a series about the seven deadly sins, and the sin I was given was pride. Uh, we, only have our, we only have pride left, they said. <laughs> which has uh, suited me fine. <clears throat> the girl died. Well, what was that to me? The girl died, and it was nothing to do with us, with either of us. She died the stupid way that people do, in a car crash in Italy, where presumably she was driving on the wrong side of the road. Silly twit. If the girl had not died, then she would not have mattered, not in the slightest. She would have been a lapse. My husband is prone to lapses. Less often of late, but yes, once every couple of years he does lapse. After the office party, say, or travelling on business. I don't think he visits prostitutes. I mean, some men do, some men must. Or Quite a lot of men must, actually, but my husband doesn't. And I know, I know I would say that, but I've thought about this a lot over the years. Things catch my eye in articles and magazines. I've wondered what makes them go and what makes them stay. What do they want? Men. It's the great mystery, isn't it? 
what men want and the damage they might do to get it. The things you read in the papers. Oh, sure, they're all the same. Isn't that what your mother used to say? They're all the same. But they're not. They have their reasons and they have their limits. They have hearts too. And I can say without a shadow of a doubt that my husband is not the kind of man to buy sex in the street. He likes intimacy. That is what he craves. My husband is the kind of man who will always look you in the eye. He loves women, even older ones. He loves to talk to them and make them feel good. And he loves to kiss them and be a little dangerous. He loves the melancholy of all that. It makes him feel so young. And he also loves me. He's not a bastard, that's what I'm saying. I'm saying that he is a fantastic man. My husband is a fantastic man, and until the girl died, beetling along in her little Renault Clio on the wrong side of a road in Tuscany, until the girl died, that was enough for me to be married to a fantastic man who loved me and was prone once in a long while to a little lapse and a lot of Catholic guilt about it. Oh, the bloody bunch of flowers and the new coat in Richard Allen's sale. Isn't it worth it, I used to say. <laughs> Isn't it bloody worth it for a trip to Brown Thomas's and a long weekend with the kids, all of us together in Ballybunion walking the winter beach, a couple of bottles of wine, and more conjugal antics than is decent at our age, with my wonderful husband home again after his little lap, some over-ambitious young one who will shortly be fired. Thank you, darling. And no, I know you will never do it again. <laughs> but actually, I hated it. It was like living on the page of some horrible Sunday newspaper. Horrible people, horrible people with their horrible sex lives and their horrible money. No. He works hard, my husband. And I have always been a great asset to him. And we are ordinary people. And I am proud of that too. Ke I can't say his name, isn't that funny? It's quite an ordinary name, I say it 15 times a day. Mind you, he never calls me anything back, isn't that the way of it? What do men call their wives? Em. Like every woman on the planet was christened Emily. Em, is this shirt clean? <laughs> the girl was called, listen to this, Samantha. <laughs> not that I knew this at the time, not that I knew anything at the time, and she was only called Samantha because she died. If it hadn't been for the car crash, she would have been and always remained that young one over an IT or even that slapper over an IT. O'Connell Street might be full of slappers, if, but if one of them slaps off pissed in her miniskirt and high heels and gets herself run over, then she's what? She's a fine young woman who liked to wear white. <laughs> I'm sorry. But the poor child who thought it was a laugh to sleep with my husband, and it is a laugh, God knows I've laughed often enough myself. <laughs> the poor child who thought it was a laugh to sleep with the father of my three children did something worse than all that. She went and died on him too. She went and died on us all. Of course, I didn't have a clue. He came home, when I think about it, it must have been the day he'd heard the news. And he sat on the sofa, and for the first time since his mother's funeral, I saw him cry. 
The children saw him cry. I had no idea what he was crying for. I felt like calling an ambulance. Then I put two and two together and I realised he must be lapsing again. He must be mid-lapse. <laughs> and I panicked. I know that. I did panic. It's not like me. He lifted his head to speak to me and I said, I don't want to know. That was all. I don't want to know. And I said it really fast, like I was talking off the record here, like what was happening was not actually happening, or he'd better make bloody sure it wasn't happening, because I wasn't having the mess of it all over my beautiful hard-won house. And he pushed his face around to clear away the tears. Not hot tears, not outraged, grief-stricken tears, just that leaky, worn-out water you find on your face sometimes when you are sick or defeated. He wiped the tears away, and then he just sat. My fantastic man. The first time it happened at a guess was when the kids were small. I was up to my tonsils in nappies and mayhem, falling asleep before my head hit the pillow, fat as a fool. Anyway, they feel excluded, fathers. Isn't that what the articles say? They have the weight of the world on their shoulders, and after a while, I'm convinced of this, they start to resent you, maybe even to hate you. And then one day, they love you madly again. And you realise, slowly you realise, that they've been up to something. They've had a fright. They've come running back home. Which is nice, too, in a way. Oh, what the hell. The first time it happened, my father was in having some tests, and I was far too busy to shout at my husband or go through his pockets or sniff at his clothes before I put them in the washing machine. I had more important things on my mind. In the end, everything went so well, and Daddy didn't even have to have chemotherapy, after which I was too relieved to go doubling back and start shouting at my husband or sniffing at his clothes. It was over by then. And besides, I had learned something about myself. I'd learned that I was not that sort of woman, the sniffing sort, the type to rage and scream. And that was an odd kind of feeling too, I must say, because I grew up with the same dreams as every other girl. But when the chips were down, when the chips were down, I kept my head high. What was I supposed to do? One part of me thought he deserved a holiday, to be honest, that if I had the chance, I might take one myself. Another part of me thought, someone must die. I really thought I might kill someone for this. I might kill her, or I might kill him, or I might leave them to it and kill myself. Well, that's no use, is it? This stupidity, this incontinence of my husband's was too small to bother about. And it was too large to leave us all standing, all still alive. But you know, maybe it was in my head from that time, in both our heads. The idea that someone must die. So what are we looking at? Two or three more over the course of the years, a scattering of accidents. And then one day, this, whatever it is, a man crying on a sofa. Grief. It was half past five. The children are watching telly before tea. I cleared them out of there. My daughter, the apple of her father's eye, welling up a bit at the sight of him with his coat thrown beside him and his briefcase still in the other hand. Kids bury that sort of stuff very deep. I thought it would be better if she talked about it, but when I asked her a week later about her father crying on the sofa, she just 
looked at me like I'd landed in from outer space. What sofa, she said. Which sofa? That's Shauna for you, who is nine. There's no point talking to her brothers about it. They've already gone into the grunting phase. And then I think, why not? Why not talk to your sons about these things? Why not rear men who can speak? Because there's my husband, collapsed against the oatmeal-colored linen mix, staring mortality in the face. And what else? His own smallness, looking as though he had killed her himself. Although he had not killed her, he had not even loved her. Thinking, as I imagine, about some beautiful part of her, mangled by the door or bonnet and turning already to clay. And there's no one he can talk to about all of this, no one at all. Men don't have friends like that. Guys, you might ring up and say, would you take him out for a drink, talk it over, sort him out. No, the only friend he has is me. And he can't tell me because I really don't want to know. All of this in hindsight, of course, at the time, I looked at him and I thought that our marriage was finished or that he was finished. I was looking at extended sick leave and then what? My husband, crying on the sofa, was 49 years old. And if you think 49 is a tough station, try 55. <laughs> I was looking at a long future with a man who had forgotten what he was for. So when he pushes the tears off his face with his hand and when he lifts his face to tell me all about it, there is only one thing I can say to him and that is, I don't want to know. How did we get through the next week? Normally, as a guess, that's how we did it. We got through the week in a completely normal way. While I waited for some hint or clue the back page of the newspaper that he stares at too long. And then on Tuesday morning, I come in from the school run and he's still there in his dark suit, putting on his funeral tie. <clears throat> Who's dead? Some girl, he says. What girl? Someone's daughter. He doesn't answer. He brushes his shoulders off in the mirror. He says, we only get them trained and they're gone. Well, I'm sure she didn't mean to. Round and round goes the funeral tie, down through the knot, pull it tight, ease it a little loose again, kiss the wife goodbye. You don't want me to show, I say, because I'm raging now. I know what has happened now. I want to twist the knife. No, he says, she was only in the door. You sure? No, no. Pick up your briefcase. Pull your phone off the charger, check for your keys. Home for tea, I say. What is it? <laughs> I thought I'd grill a bit of salmon. Forget where your good coat is kept. Open one door of the wardrobe, the other door of the wardrobe. Look to your wife who says it's under the stairs. <laughs> Look your wife in the eye as she says this. Reach out to touch her neck and hair. Say, thanks. Then off you go. Oh, I know what you are thanking me for. The front door clicks shut on my husband in his funeral tie, and I wander downstairs to tidy away the breakfast things and make my usual cup of coffee. 
I fill the kettle and plug it in. I take out my mug and put it on the counter. And then before the water is boiled, I have the recycling bin, bin spilt all over the floor. And I'm going through the old newspapers for death notices. Samantha, Sammy, McHale, tragically abroad. Easy. I get out the phone book and look that up too. The church is in Walkenstown, so that's her family off the Cromelsfort Road. She might have lived at home still at 24, the price of everything these days. I could go there now if I wanted to. I could drive there in my little car. I wonder, do her parents know what she got up to? I have a shameful desire to tell them, so sharp I have to stand still until it subsides. No, I'm not that kind of person. I make my cup of coffee and I calm down. Still, I wonder what she looked like. What school did she go to? They might have pictures in the corridors of former girls in a row. The class of, what year would it be? The class of 1998. So young. All the time I'm loading the dishwasher and taking out the hoover and doing my morning round, the funeral is happening in my head, but I'm not going to jump in the car and hack my way across to Walkenstown. I am not that kind of person. I'm not going to panic at the last minute and show up at the cemetery to check the faces at the grave and pick up a few words here and there about what a fine girl she was. Irrepressible, full of fun. Bloody right she was full of fun. Or not. Maybe she was shy, unassuming, easily impressed. She might have been a quiet kind of girl, a girl who was anxious to please. No, I'm not going to find this out or anything else because that would be obscene. I'm not going to show up like a ghost at the wedding. What's, what's the opposite of that? Like a flesh and blood wife at this last dance with the dead. We had the salmon when he came home. Potatoes, a bit of asparagus. Lovely, says my husband, delicious. Then he gets up afterwards and makes himself a sausage sandwich, cold from the fridge. Butter, mayonnaise, the lot. And I say, why don't you put some lard in there while you're at it? <laughs> this is the last real thing I say to him for a long while. Where's the gas bill gone? When will you be home? Would you pick up Shauna from her ballet? We could do this forever. After a few weeks of it, my husband gets a little nervous cough. He wonders if it could be lung cancer. His, his third toe is numb. Isn't that a sign of MS? And I just say, get it checked out. Because the girl is dead. So let's not bother with the fuss and futher of getting back together. Let's not do all that again. Not this time. This time, let us mourn. I'm too proud. I know that. And in my pride, I watched him, my fantastic, stupid man, lurch around in his life. And I didn't offer him a helping hand. Where's the key to the shed? When will you be home? Would you pick up a pack of plastic blades for the flymo? The girl was with us all this time. She was standing at the bus stop on the corner. She was sitting in our living room watching Big Brother. She was being buried night after night on the evening news. I think that milk's gone off. When will you be home? I really don't want the children having TV sets in their rooms. After a month of this, I looked at my husband and saw that he was old. It didn't happen overnight. It happened 
over 30 nights or so. My husband shaking hands with death. And what else? Thinking about it. Thinking it wouldn't be so bad to be dead after all, like she was. Whenever I woke in the night, he was awake too. Once I heard him crying again, this time in the shower, he thought the noise of the water would cover it. I listened to him snuffling and choking in the spray, and I realized it was time to put my pride away. It was time to call him back home. On Saturday, after the supermarket run, I put on my good coat and my leather gloves and a hat, even my funeral hat. And when my husband says, where are you off to? Because God knows I can't go anywhere without drawing a map. I say, I'm going to visit a grave. I had a beautiful bunch of white lilies all wrapped up in cellophane. I picked them up off the kitchen counter and walked past him. I cradled the lilies against my shoulder and I walked past my husband, who was now old. And I did not look back as I went out the door. She did not matter to him. I know that. I know she did not matter. So I went to the cemetery and sought out her grave. I wandered through the headstones until I found her and I put the lilies on the ground under which she lay and I told her that she mattered. Then I went home and said to my husband. Then I went home and said to Kevin, let's do something for Easter. What do you think? Something nice. Where would you like to go? Thank you very much. Thank you. What a, what a brilliant story that is, and how complex. It's him I feel sorry for. <laughs> I, I, I read it to um, some American students that I had, and, uh, and one woman said to me, why are you so nice to him? <laughs> why are you so nice to him? And, and, um, and I said, well, it's not really a writer's job to judge people in, in the way, you know, if he was married to a friend of yours, you'd have different things to say. But um, as a writer, you're looking for other currents and other kind of stories under the story. Yeah. And why do you feel so sorry for him? Well, why do I feel so sorry for him? Well, he can't get away from her, you know. I mean, <laughs> she, she's, the th she's the outside circle, you know. She's the thing. She's the circumference of the, of the family and the house. And there's no getting, get, getting away from that. She, uh, you know, it's, so no matter what he does, it, she, she's still, there's, you know, it's a mythic relationship and she's not going to let the myth go. But there's a, a They're real... not going to do ordinary things like go off with someone else or anything. You know what I mean? It's, yeah. Because of her gravity, her centre of gravity. Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, that's all written from her point of view. So, so she is the centre of the story. So, yes, so she spreads to the edges of the story and he's sort of trapped in that story a little. But it is very interesting about the political economy of a marriage. Yeah, I mean, first I have to say that although the kind of content of the story is about infidelity, I realize very often that I write the same stories over and over again, and that isn't 
for me a story about infidelity so much as uh, a kind of repeat of this endless theme I have, the Orpheus and Eurydice thing that I, I find I've written all the time, which is somebody looking, she doesn't look back, right? He looks back, Orpheus looked back as he was bringing Eurydice out of the underworld. And when he looked back, he, he lost her. And so I, I'm, I'm, it's both about death and desire that, that, that people in my work are always trying to get pull the dead back somehow. But also, there's a point about desire that you lose it on the instant. So it's very difficult to possess in some way. So that, that's the sort of deep mythic line of the story. And these sort of deep mythic lines are very intimate to a writer. And the, and the, the infidelity thing isn't so intimate. Mm. <laughs> it's like, oh, that's just the content, you know. Um, what was the question again? Well. <laughs> My question now is, which is different from the other one, who, which I've forgotten as well, is wh why do you think you come back to this particular story? Oh, I, well, if I knew that, I'd give up, you see. I mean, there are a few, there are other stories. And, and, and with a bit of luck, there, I will find that I've written other stories as well. And people don't notice that you write the same story all the time, which is great. <laughs> and also, you don't notice that you write the same story all the time. But I remember reading two stories together and realizing they were both exactly the same story and, and s apologizing to the audience and saying, I'm sorry, this is the same story as the last time. And they looked at me like, no, it's not. It's completely <laughs> different. Um, but yes, if I knew that. I so mean, is that like you don't want to look back either? No. Oh, well, yeah. Oh, well. <laughs> uh, you know, Lot's wife is another one who made that mistake. Um, she was looking at a disaster. Uh, but in fact, the gathering is also about looking yeah, back. Yeah, there's a lot of that, yeah, a lot of that. But he looks back, Orpheus looks back, I can't really, I can't really disentangle it. I don't mind looking back. I, it's just a thing about what you want. It's what you want is very hard to see. I know that um, you say the content doesn't really matter about these stories, but it's an intriguing... Yeah, no, it's fun, yeah, it's yeah, fun. It's an intriguing story because you rarely get that sense of the wife who's usually deciding that the other woman is the enemy, suddenly <laughs> makes a move to say, this is a, this is a child woman who yeah. has died. And um, probably like a lot of child women who are, have been involved with men who aren't their own, um, have, you know, have, have been you know, kind of um, drawn in in ways that... Yes, so I may not have much control over. I, I, she I has great sympathy for the girl in the end. She does, and 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 that's her particular journey to that moment of compassion, and that's what she needs to do to resolve the story. Issues of forgiveness are very difficult, and uh, 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 and so that's how she comes to 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 that. Um, so that's that's the change. That's in fact the change that happens in the story. But um, I didn't do it in a sort of political way. And I don't write in a sort of political way. I don't say, here is the problem, this is what men do, therefore we must act in this way or that way, and this is how we should respond or how we don't respond, and this is the ways in which we are foolish. Um, I don't have that dialogue in, in, in my head much, you know, which would be a dialogue you'd have with a friend, yeah. you know. Um, it, 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 I'm, I'm looking for a different kind of resonance. But you see men all over the world having the, the holiday with the wife that she's just, she deserves at the end of the year um, for whatever lapses that they may have. Yes. 
yeah, no, she, she, she's, she's, got an, uh, she's got a kind of economy going. You know, it works. The marriage works. Um, and people do make all kinds of accommodations and arrangements. Uh, and some of them are not obvious, but they get very obvious when sex is involved. Mm. There's an, there's a it's like who does the laundry. Go on. Well, I mean, it's any, there are any number of agreements that you have with a partner. Any number of them. And, and um, once a line is crossed, but, but it's supposed to be a sexual relationship, so once that's broken, then, whoa, <laughs> any, you know, the, 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 the economy collapses, basically. You, you have... Um I mean, the other thing I've noticed about people in your stories is they want to be moved and they want to be shaken and they want something to happen or else they don't want to think about something big that did happen. Right. But there's this, there's this tension between desperately wanting mayhem and def desperately wanting order. Really? Okay. I think so. Yeah. Well, that's, that's good. <laughs> that's, that sounds right. It's like yeah. li life is a big ride. Yeah, yeah, okay. <laughs> If you say so. <laughs> well, yes. I mean, they're engaged, and they're and they have problems of 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 not of being alienated as well, of not being engaged. But uh, yeah, it's a story, you know. And in story, something happens. And actually, a lot of that the, the the trope of the girl dying or whatever is you look at a situation or potential situation, you say, well, what would make it matter? What would make it matter? Because it doesn't actually matter to the fabric of, of that marriage, you know. So something makes it matter. The girl dies and suddenly, you know, the Christmas party becomes a very serious event. So when you say it was commissioned um, as, a, as an essay on pride... No, a, story a, a on radio pride. monologue, yeah. Oh, it's a piece on pride. Yeah. Did, did you have it or did you I make had, it? I had a little kernel and I do love pride. It's, it's my favourite sin. Um, it's, uh, uh, Why is it your favourite? Well, because of my, it's, I'm a, uh, because of sort of, if you ever taught by an intellectual nun, you'd know, you know that. Uh, I can't, I can't you claim know, that. that. That that pride is her problem too. You know, <laughs> she's done sloth, envy, gluttony. You know, all of those. But pride is is uh, Kate O'Brien is great on pride. Um, yeah, and and, uh, and women are very, Irish women are very proud. I don't know if women in general are very proud. It's one way of coping with things. But um, also, you know, uh, sloth, gluttony and all the rest aren't sins anymore. They're just um, part of the capitalist enterprise, really. <laughs> and, um, but, uh, so, uh, and uh, um, I, I'm also very interested in envy. Um, which is also a good sin. So I'll get to that sometime. Why is envy a good sin? It's the most destructive of the lot of them. Um, it's the, you know, I, I, I draw a distinction, this is just by the way, between jealousy and envy. If you're jealous of someone, you say, how did they get that? I'm going to get that, right? If you're envious of someone, you go away and you eat your own liver. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and you can't move. It is, it is, it's a very destructive force. Have you ever felt it? Uh, I'm actually, I have quite a jealous nature, but I don't have an envious nature, actually. I, I don't have, I, I don't think so. And pride? Oh, I have that. <laughs> I have my pride. In fact, you know, if, 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 you know, if I'm behaving in some way that is inexplicable, that is, that is a word that explains it. <laughs> Did, were you surprised at the ending of that story when it came? 
Um, I don't know when you get the ending. Um, I don't know. I don't know wh when that happens in the process of writing the story. I wrote that too quickly, actually, that story. Um, so, you know, it's a bit baggy in the middle, but... Um, I don't think it's baggy at all. Well, it is a bit baggy now. I'd go back, I'd do a little here, and... I'd, and, uh, and you're not tempted to do that? Oh, I am, yes, yes. And but I can't get back into it because, because I wrote it longer than it possibly naturally should be. I mean, I'm only talking maybe a paragraph or so. Um, I usually let the words settle and condense before I, before I move. You know, but I, I don't move too fast. What sort of relationship do you have with an editor? Do you... Do you Allow well, yourself to be edited. Here. I hope he's here. You can ask him. No, no, I'll, you tell this me. This is also what I say when people ask me about my mother. I say, here's her phone number. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but you ask her. No, uh, about pride in editing, though. It's an interesting yeah, juxtaposition. I, uh, I don't. I, I tend to deliver very finished work. I mean, so, I, I so wait you don't for like very, to be edited. Well, uh, I, 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 it's, it's actually. Because of the kind of writer I am, it's quite difficult to get into the, the work. To disin Do you know what I mean? I, I don't write necessarily in a conventional arc or with a conventional structure. And also, the, the work is usually really quite finished by the time uh, I, I, I get it. What do you mean you don't write in a conventional arc? Do you mean there's a lot of sort of cross-stitching that you well, Which isn't to say it. that my editor isn't terribly important. <laughs> <laughs> Well, an editor is more an intellectual presence than anything else, you know. Yeah. Yeah, that but this, this Or a creative place. This non-conventional arc of writing. Yeah. What is... Well, it's sort of various it? incompetencies that I have that I sort of try to turn into strengths somehow. <laughs> but, uh, um, I, I always worried about not writing proper books. And every time I tried to write a proper book, I just couldn't... I got too bored or I, it just got wrong or it got too false. So I tend to not write proper books. I, uh, I, I don't write third person, past tense, beginning, middle and end books in which, I mean, I'd love to write a book that's just said, it happened like this. It's the first sentence. And then I would take the reader through a series of events. But actually, I'm never sure that it happened quite like that. <laughs> I think that's one way of describing how it happened. And that, 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 that impulse to settle it all down doesn't work for me. It just sounds false, because that's not the way we think about how things happen. It's one of the reasons we like stories and we like... So people find a lack of... The, la the consolations of narrative um, and the sense of safety that gives. And I, I don't give that until the end. You know, you have to stick with me mm. until... But you do like the sh short story form. Uh, I think you said once that it was in you felt it was um, intuitive to you, or um, yeah, uh, I just write them. I don't get too fussed. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, novels are very—they live with you, and they're a problem. You can't not write them. You couldn't choose not to write a novel. You'd just be like, and it annoys you, and it's with you, and it's a, uh, and you, th and also with a novel. If you, you know, if you resolve this in some way, then something in yourself will be resolved. It's a kind of, uh, it's a kind of way of growing up, writing a novel. And um, whereas the short story, I can, I, can, I can just leave it there for years until it's ready to go, until I have the next piece of information I need. Um, and it's not, it's not I, I say you're married to the novel. You have no choice. <laughs> whereas the short story is more of an encounter, really. So, so 
what, what did you learn about yourself or what did you resolve in yourself when you finished the gathering? That's a very interesting question. I just want to hold the book there and say, well, I, I resolved this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what did I resolve? Well, things about uh, mourning, I suppose. Issues about mourning. Uh, letting people go. Um, some things about family, but not really any things about family. You don't resolve them. Um, I'm um, interested in t t perhaps talking about a couple of the other stories in this collection. Um, you've got um, one called Wife, where a man notices a woman with a scar on her throat mm. at the news agents, and we, we see his relationship with his wife and his mother and his daughter, really quite daily and domestic. Um, but he's fascinated by this scarred woman, and, and towards the end of the story, you're right, he was looking for the kind of pain he could bury himself in. Um, can, can you tell me how the story gets to there, to that moment? Yeah, it just has a series of bad moments, actually, or increasingly bad moments. He, he, um, you know, he goes over, he, his, his wife annoys him slightly, and then he goes over to his widowed mother to fix a dripping tap that had been dripping forever. Um, and then his father died, and he had to fix the tap suddenly. Um, and, his, and he brings his daughter over, and his daughter is, as, as children can be, it's all very, you know, her hair is a mess, and, uh, and she's singing about poo in the car. <laughs> and, and there is an increasing uh, distaste that starts with seeing this woman with a scar. I don't like that story because I don't do male narrators very often or at all, and it's a real challenge for me, so I said I'll do this guy, and it had to be a guy who saw this woman with a scar. I did see a woman with an amazing scar. I thought, ooh, that's not surgical. Who cut her throat? Um, which is what he thinks. Um, I, 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 and she was, a, she was in a sweet shop. Uh, so, um, but I, I don't like that story because he starts off as a normal, ordinary guy, and by the end, you'd think he's, you know, he's, he's slightly soiled <laughs> and, and slightly trapped in his own negativity. Uh, and usually, my female characters or narrators are freed up by the story, and they're freed up by the voice and by the telling of the story, so that they might start in quite circumscribed situation, but they talk their way out of it somehow. And, and instead, in this story, he was talked into this position. Now, you don't think he's going to kill his wife, or you don't think, but it, it was a sort of gathering misogyny, for lack of a better word. Uh, or, 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 and I left the story completely ambiguous. He might just continue as being an ordinary person and nothing happens at all. But he has a little flash of discomfort about it all. Um, so, although that emotion was useful to kind of, the, in, in, in its being so tenuous, was the short story was the right thing to have, just that little tick of emotion. Uh, I, it, it probably wouldn't affect him one way or the other. He's <laughs> just having a bad day. But still, it's, um, it, it does take one's breath away, which is what is fantastic about your story, is that he's just you know, noodling around. He's going to the news agency. He's going to fix this tap. He's yeah. just having a normal day, and suddenly he just has this dark thought. He also has a pro I mean, he has a problem with pain, which is other people's pain. Uh, I remember working with a guy once, and uh, the photocopier was flashing, and he tried to push the buttons. He said, I always think they're in pain. <laughs> he, 
I think it needed more toner. Um, uh, and so this guy has the same moment of what to do with this other stranger's pain. Um, and of course, one of the solutions of pain is to, uh, is to love it, you know. So when he wants the kind of pain he could bury himself in, yes, it's a sexual sort of image, um, but it might make things better. Mm. Um, I, I also want or to worse. I mean, it's a terrible <laughs> thing to write. <laughs> I don't know. Sorry. But the, the humour and the pain together is something that you, you all, there's always, I mean, even those, those jokes that that woman makes um, and, and at the expense of herself and everybody around her. Yeah. Has that ever got you into trouble? Oh, all the time. The, 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 the thing being that Veronica in the gathering, people are surprised by or, or confused by the fact that she has a, a deep love and no sentimentality. And they think that this is unusual. But Irish women talk like that all the time. And Irish women joke all the time. And just because it hasn't been written down all that much doesn't mean that it isn't authentic, to, for lack of a better word. Um, and uh, it, it just, it, it's part of the fact that the country uh, is emerging from fairly poor circumstances. And that's what keeps people going, you know? They, they make jokes. And they don't, it's not crass jokes, it's like twist, you know? Uh, and, and, and it's empowering as well. And there's, a, there's in another story, um, somebody is um, talking about um, Irish women as lovers and uh, saying something like um, that they're, they're, you know, it's, a, it's all a bit of a laugh. Oh, yeah, until bed. they take an overdose. And, <laughs> <laughs> and, or, I think it was they were standing in the street throwing bottles at your house. At your windows. <laughs> Uh, yes, well, I think that, well, that was a guy, uh, a, a, an American in Ireland, looking at Irish girls and saying, you know, I do remember somebody asking, how do you get an Irish woman into bed? I was like, you wait until she pushes you over. <laughs> so, I don't know. <laughs> I, 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 you know, what a peculiar question. Um, yeah, I don't know. Maybe, it's, maybe that's international. But uh, yes, and it's it's always a challenge not to become brittle in that humor mm. um, to get a to get a to get a, a sort of deep creak in there as well you know, with the irony that it comes from the guts i mean it's irony that isn't just ha 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 isn't yeah. it all very ironic i wanted to also point out that you 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 can be very very sympathetic to the, your male characters um, and there's a there's a lovely um, story called here's to love who, and there's a woman who, whose men friends talk about their marriages to her and, uh, and one of them says his wife is up and down and you say because up and down is Irish for anything at all from crying into the dishes to full-blown psychosis. <laughs> <laughs> and then he talks about his frustrations of his wife with their life and he says she wants to get back to her singing and she, she and, and, and the woman in this um, story says, she was very keen to tell me how she trained as a gymnast, as I recall, but I don't remember any singing. I'm sure Shay is right. I'm sure she is a famous singer disguised as a wife and that it's all Shay's fault for thwarting her and shrinking her life. I mean... Um, I got into trouble for that. People said, why are, the, why are, why are all these women so disappointed? Um, the wives, you know, that this was the problem. Uh, the narrator in that story is, has her life quite well organized and uh, she has a very unusual um, relationship. She, she loves somebody 
but it's not a, an ordinary domestic sort of set, set up with uh, kids and all the rest. And she says, it's just what happens to women when they have kids, it just hits them faster than men, that thing, God, what, 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 what have I done, what will I do? Um, but because I, I should, I, I was told I should be nice, you know, I should be more empowering to women. <laughs> or not empowering, but the, why are these wives all so disappointed? And I want to say, well, why are wives disappointed? It's, it's sort of built in somehow. You spend so much of your energy for 10, 15 years with children, and then you look around as women do and say, well, what am I going to do now? And it just happens, it happens. Um, so it would be wonderful to say we're always empowered and free and lovely. and. Uh, but that's not necessarily the case. And it's not as interesting as this. Well, yeah. But the men have it too. I, I don't know. I mean, I don't know. I'm, I'm talking myself into a hole here. Can we change the subject? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think you just must be such a close observer of people and a listener. Do, do, you, do you find people opening up to you or do you have to surmise a lot about what goes on? Well, I talk so much, I don't know how I pick up any information. <laughs> I suppose I watch. You're a watcher? Yeah. I suppose, I don't know. And do you take notes immediately? Uh, physically, write things down? No, I never take notes, no. Uh, no, I mean, what, 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 the, what, what happens when I'm working is that I'm working with the sentences. And so I have a sort of available library of sort of various impressions and sense impressions and whatever, and I'll use them and I'll, I'll tr chuck something in that, that's appropriate to but it's usually the sentences and the, and the emotion that I'm working with. You and, know? The, and the rhythm and the sound, do you speak aloud, your sentences? Well, I, you know, I, 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 I couldn't say I, I speak aloud because you, you'd think I would be such an idiot at the computer <laughs> talking, uh, you know. But Glenn, the late Glenn Gould uh, is a pianist and, and you can hear him going, mm -hmm, while he's playing the piano and little grunts. So that's as far as I'd get, I'd be typing out. Mm -hmm. I just uh, <laughs> so <clears throat> but yeah, so I'd be I'd be I'd be acting it out, I suppose. Well, I think we should have the lights up now perhaps and we'll get some questions from um, the audience. And you have to talk into the microphone um, when it gets given to you. So um, who's got a question? Don't be shy. You can say anything you like as long as it's nice. <laughs> now, come on. She's a very nice woman. You can see that. Yeah. Are you aware that you're a, a, a female writer who has a particular um, uh, attraction for, for male readers? Um, and if you are, um, what do you account, how do you account for this? Well, it's a good, it's a trick. <laughs> it is a trick. Um, and it's an interesting, that's an, that's an interesting um, thing to be asked because women writers who only appeal to women are not considered important. So importance is a series of postures. It's a trick, right? Importance is a trick. And you see people who know how to play the trick and you say, oh, I must try that now. And one of them is appealing to male readers. <laughs> uh, and, and one of the things about these postures is that they sort of become true. It's, it's quite interesting to see. But, a, 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 but a, a writer who appeals only to women um, will, will not, in the, the current cultural climate, be considered important. So, um, so what is the trick for, to appealing to men? I, I think as Mavis 
Gallant, he said that she taught A-level creative writing. And uh, all the boys, without, all the women, all the girl students, without exception, had happy endings in which people found love. And all the male students, without exception, had tragic endings in which the place was covered in blood and shit <laughs> and every bodily fluid known. And everybody was dead and it was all awful. So, so, um, so I just have a bit of both in there, really. <laughs> um, but uh, and although that sounds crass, I think that's a very, I, I mean it quite urgently, um, uh, uh, that, that this is an interesting thing to do with a book, you know? Um, because one of the things women writers want to do is to heal, to gather. Uh, the, the female need to make things right is very strong. Um, and writing books is partly making things right. Um, uh, so it's just something I'm, I'm quite aware of as And you write, so many of the men that you meet are dead. Some of them are dead in a nice sort of way. Some of them are just dead. It makes them dangerous to seduce. They give you their white blindness. I'm just wondering if, as a man, how that would appeal to me. <laughs> <laughs> What is white blindness? I don't know. Read your Moby Dick. <laughs> True. I will. I'll go back to it. <laughs> Another question? Yeah. Just a second. You've got to have the mic. It has to do with the previous question and the answer. Uh, if we had thought 30 years ago that the situation with women writers would be the one we have today, we wouldn't have believed it. I mean, if you uh, look from Edith Wharton to you or and Rice or, I mean, whoever you might think of. Uh, women are uh, writing increasingly, but they are, not, they are not getting into the canon or they are not getting the influence that they deserve. And you it's said not only a question of deserve. Oh, that we wouldn't it have believed. It has to do with what you said, importance or influence or whatever. What, how would you qualify on that? Yeah, I mean, you can get... You can well, mainstream, you can get... I'm doing all right, do you know what I mean? Um, the, the issues, I mean, although I, I talk about importance as a trick and all of those kind of things, the, all of these things are no use when you're facing the page. They're just no use. Um, it might get you to sit down. These, these political issues motivate and keep you keen and keep your intentions fine. But they don't help. They're, they're no, they don't add impetus or give sucker. They are just there. And so I can't control issues of reputation. So I don't try to control them. All I try to do is write the books, you know. Um, and I really do try, I'd really, I really do try to write the books. <laughs> I mean, that is my, that's, that's mainly what I do. And, um, but I think women are incredibly strong. And, well, I, I also think that we make our establishment in our heads. We all have a different establishment. And writers perhaps need that establishment. They need an idea of people who are wrong and in power. And that, it's that, that ne there's a necessary connection between those two things. The establishment is always wrong. And, and for some writers, it might be white Oxford, you know, or, you know, they will make their establishment. Um, uh, and so I'm wary of throwing up 
it may actually just be some kind of bugbear to say, the canon. Fuck the canon. <laughs> it's like, fuck them, you know. The, the, uh, the Irish Field Day anthology years ago forgot to put any women in it. They just forgot. And it's like, they're a joke. I mean, and to me, it was just a joke. They just made fools of themselves all over the world by forgetting to have any women in. I mean, you should try Ireland. <laughs> try Ireland. <laughs> you know, if you, if you want to get cross. <laughs> yeah, there's a, um, just here in the front. You're a wonderful writer, and I really enjoyed your work very much. And it turns out today that you're also a wonderfully articulate talker, say quite unexpected things. Uh, and I've enjoyed it enormously, but does the one ever get in the way of the other? I don't know. It's like people are saying, are you really worried about writing the next book? And I said, well, if you keep talking to me like that, I might be, if you keep asking. <laughs> um, I wasn't worried until you asked. Now I'm worried. Um, I, I, I used to work in television. I used to be very busy and, 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 have a very, uh, and then I went off and wrote and, and was, had a very solitary life. Um, and uh, people say, oh, how do, you, uh, how do you stay alone in a room, essentially? And I, I have no problem with either. Um, I have no problem with either. I need to, I need to write. Um, writers are variously competent in the world, you know, and it doesn't really make any difference. Some people say, oh, I write because I can't do anything else. Um, but whether you believe them or not, that's their excuse. Um, so I do have a big want in me to, to sit down and write. And, 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 uh, and as I say, a lot of these things don't matter. A lot of the, none of the noise actually matters. Uh, it just doesn't. A question up here. And you, you said about being um, not the most conventional of writers, but I mean, just a question about uh, the characters in the <coughs> gathering, because there, there are quite a number of characters there, and you seem to know the characters, every character so well. Um, so do, do the characters form as you're writing, or do you script the characters before you start writing? Uh, well, usually I work on the, on the page. Um, I'm very interested in, in, in the fact that this year I've been kept from the page so a lot of the next book is happening in my head a lot of issues are resolved before I hit the page I don't know whether that will help things or 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 not I suspect it will actually but um, uh, yeah, uh, the characters the Hegarty's were all easy they were all there and, and I was helped in the fact that uh, families label each other all the time um, uh, um, I, I was the brat, so uh, families label, and, and then we spend the rest of our lives trying to get out of that label, or proving it. You want brat? I'll give you brat. <laughs> um, you know, so 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 you know, I, a, a lot of our time as writers as well is is trying to get out of the boxes that we're put in. But anyway, families are labeled, so so it was easy with the Hegartys to slap labels on these people. And it's the way the families talk about each other. And there's one guy, Mossy, who's um, Mossy the psychotic. And he's not psychotic. He hasn't, he hasn't done anything. He, was, he, he had a bad adolescence. Um, but, you know, it's 20 years on, and she realizes he hasn't, he's not psychotic. And they've been tormenting him with this label for years. Um, 
So, so they're kind of caricatures as well. Well, I don't know if they are. They were just there. And, and, and it's great fun. And then you make a big chart with, you know, starting in 1905 and going to 2002 and you wreck your head and then you put it all over the wall and you take it off and then you, put, and then you write the book and realise that the chart is five years out. <laughs> and uh, not only that it is five years out, but, you ha but it all, the, the book all works on those terms, that actually it didn't end in 2007, it ended in 2002, and that your unconscious did all the chart work. But, you know, different colours. Pens. Where do they live? And again, you keep track, yeah, so, but sort of no. This might be our last question. Uh, do you ever regret anything you've ever written? Wish you could recall it. I'm thinking about your article about the McCanns. Well, it, the general sense is I regret everything I've written, um, and I wish I could have written it better. Um, in this specific instance of the McCanns, I think I was made to regret it, which is a different thing. Uh, it's whether I'm going to agree with the tabloids or not on that one, and I really can't agree with the tabloids because that would make me somehow a lesser writer. Um, so that's my more complex answer. Well, um, we've come to the end of our time um, with Anne Enright. It's gone very quickly for me. I'm sure it has for you. Um, she's going to be signing her books in the tent next door, so if you allow us to leave and we'll get her settled there and you can come and get them signed there. Um, so I wanted to thank Joe Ross for signing today and please thank Anne Enright for being such a fantastic writer. Thank you. Thank you.